Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tales to Terrify. I hope that you enjoyed the stories last week from Rick Kennett and Simon Bestwick. Tonight we have two stories for you. There is an unusual theme between the authors and the narrators. Their bios are all very brief. Perhaps they are all humble or they are like myself and find it hard to talk about their own accomplishments too much. Our first story comes from L.P. Lee. Lee grew up moving between London and Sill. Trained in Chinese and anthropology, Lee enjoys exploring culture in her writing. Let's hear L.P. Lee's A House of Locks. For days now, the windows had been locked. The shutters were closed, and the rooms were steeped in a hot and humid darkness, punctuated only by the flicker of artificial light. The mistress was going from room to room, shining her torch on all of the windows, checking that the locks were secure. She didn't turn on the main lights because she was afraid of drawing attention to the house. She didn't want the light to filter through to the world outside because it would provoke a response. She bustled about the house, her long skirt swishing. The most important thing was to be productive. She had to move, and move she did, from the bottom floor of the house to the top, her steps brisk, her torchlight jumping from window lock to window lock. Friends had called her brave for moving there, far from the moneyed enclaves of Discovery and Repulse Bay, the safe bubble of their society. But even they hadn't known. A strangeness had fallen on the house. Things were not what they were. Now she had to keep checking the locks. Check, check she did one window lock after another, rustling down one corridor and then the next, the tap of her feet echoing off the wood-paneled walls. She dreaded the descent into night when the power would grow stronger. Her torchlight fell on a face in a doorway. Mummy? Shh, she said, kissing the child on the head. The child's father was gone. He'd ventured into the night, and the darkness had swallowed him. It hadn't even spat back his chewed-up bones. 
She wandered among boxes of clothes and crockery. There was no way to reach out to the other side, but surely help would come. Or had the nightmare spread there too? At nine o'clock, the knocking began again, a frenzied rapping on the front door. She seized up the way she always did. The hand that knocked was unfamiliar, unknown. After a while, the knocking began to subside, then stopped altogether. She gathered her wits and hurried to check on the locks. Through the hot, alien humidity, she moved, marched instead of walked. Far from the hectic pace of the city, there was a disconcerting stillness here. She thought back to the people she'd seen sitting on the streets the days before the strangeness fell. How they simply sat and watched the world go by, she couldn't understand them. She thought of her child. It was hard to raise a child so far from home. Soft as putty, ready to be molded in the likeness of your ways or in the ways of others. As she went up to the second floor, she realized that the windows were unbolted in one of the rooms. The wooden shutters pushed wide open. The night sky greeted her with the smells of the world outside. There was no time to lose. It was only a matter of time before they discovered the entrance and wormed their way in. Her hands shook as she pulled in the shutters and locked them. She couldn't close the windows quickly enough. As she secured the last window, she felt them near her, knew that they had been approaching the house quickly, creeping up the hill towards the opening. She only just closed the window in time. She went to check on her child. He was in the living room, sitting on the floor with a small lamp beside him. He sat in a pool of light, drawing pictograms on paper. Stop that, she said. She rummaged through the boxes and found a book, Winnie the Pooh. She gave it to him. After she double-checked the windows on the ground floor, she returned to the living room and took away the paper with his pictograms. The collision of black lines made her shudder. She put it in the bin. She went into the bathroom and, just for a moment, switched on the light. She looked at herself in the mirror. Her hay-colored hair flowed past her shoulders. Her blue eyes were bright. But her face was weary and battle-worn, her expression severe. She hadn't slept properly since her husband disappeared. Her lips pursed, and she turned away. In the darkness again, she switched on her torch and checked on the locks. She was not in possession of the house. A bolt would slowly unbolt, a window creak open of its own accord. When she finished her round, she put her child to sleep. Tucking him into bed, she thought again of her husband. Tears filled her eyes, and she had to turn from her child's steady gaze. Good night, my love, she whispered as she left. As she walked down the corridor, she remembered her husband. Harsh words had been exchanged. She'd stayed up through the night, waiting for him to return. In the early hours, the special space between midnight and dawn, she'd opened the window and stuck her head out, stared into the blackness of the world, and for the first time felt them. She'd pulled in the shutters and locked them, her heart beating wildly. But she knew now they wanted the land. Sooner or later, they'd come for it. Ever since her revelation, 
She'd been vigilant. The house was not on her side. Windows would open by themselves. The strangeness was seeping from room to room. They were circling the house, sharks around a swimmer. A window was opening. She rushed upstairs, scouring the rooms. Her torchlight pounced on a row of open windows. The night sky was blazing with stars. The light fell on her child. His eyes widened. His cheeks flushed pink. What have you done? She hurried to the windows. Her hands trembled. She fumbled with the locks. She could hear them running. The damned windows! The End Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was L.P. Lee's House of Locks as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen narrates this story. She is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Our second story for the evening comes from Eric J. Gunnard. Eric is a writer and editor of dark and speculative fiction, operating from the shadowy outskirts of Los Angeles. He's won the Bram Stoker Award, been a finalist for the International Thriller Writers Award, and a multi-nominee of the Pushcart Prize. Outside the realm of fiction, he's a technical writer and college professor. Visit Eric at Eric J. Gunnard, his blog ericjgunnard.blogspot.com, or at Twitter at Eric J. Gunnard. And now, let's listen to Eric Gunnard's A Curse and a Kiss. I was invisible once, long ago, though not so long that memories begin to fade like dying rose petals. I was a mere girl, a house servant, under Prince Ruskin d'Avignon. Less than a servant, I was his property, his chattel. Traded in payment while in infancy to settle an obscure debt my parents languished under. I do not begrudge them. I know what it feels like to be battered by despondency and to wish so desperately to be free of something that you would trade even your own flesh and blood for relief. Now, in my older years, I am trapped in this cursed castle while the world dies around me. Oh, 
the wishes that tremble on my lips. I wish to be safe. I wish to be somewhere else. I wish I was invisible again and could escape into the forest, walking past the creatures unseen. I wish to still be that mere girl from so long ago, living a simple life and unaware of the horrors the world could unleash. I wish Ruskin had let the old woman into his castle on that fateful rainy night. Prince Ruskin d'Avignon was a monster, a beast. Even before the curse transformed him in physical appearance to match the countenance of his character, born to a family of privilege, the palace and its staff were gifted to him on his fifteenth birthday. To say he was spoiled and cruel would be an understatement. It would be as if to say a rotting corpse was grey and fell. Of course, that would apply to the prince as well. A sentiment that even now brings mixed emotions of repulsion and satisfaction. The prince was in a particularly loathsome mood on the night my tale begins. A wild tempest blew outside, and the moans of the trees and beasts of the wood penetrated the stone walls we languished behind. He imbibed many goblets of wine and ale, and as the gale thundered against the castle. He thundered against us, his staff. Wretched gods! Ruskin shrieked at Peter, a young valet. My soup is boiling. Are you trying to scold me? He knocked the bowl off his table with a dismissive strike, and it shattered at Peter's feet. Ruskin continued, Have the kitchen make it again. Peter nodded and fled to carry the prince's displeasure. I stood behind Ruskin with head bowed, waiting for his order. And you, girl? he said. You infect me with your dejection. Your face droops like a withered sow. Are you that unhappy to stand in my presence? No, my prince, I replied. Good. His hand touched my thigh and slid inward. I wanted to scream, to flee, but I knew my place. I suffered his grope and understood he would visit my small chamber that night while I lay dreaming of other lives. Joseph, a butler, approached from the main hall, excited and with hands upraised. There's a visitor at the door. It is an old woman, and she asks for shelter tonight from the storm. Send her away. I'm sure there is a pigsty nearby with vacancy. Joseph nodded and turned back the way he had come. The prince ran one finger across the hem of my sash. The things I will do, he whispered. I shuddered. Joseph returned. Appearing uncertain. My prince, the old woman says she has something to barter for your kindness. Ruskin smirked. What baubles do beggars have? A knit scarf? Or perhaps blessed pebbles? He stood, and we followed Joseph to the main entrance. There were other servants in the grand hall, and they all bowed their heads as Ruskin passed. The front gate was open, and under the storm stood a woman, who appeared as old as the moon above. She hunched over, and one eye drooped, so that it nearly touched the upturned corner of her drawn mouth. The other eye was large and wild. It tracked Ruskin's steps to her. Please, she asked. I ask only for a bit of shelter tonight from the storm. I'm told you have something to barter, he coldly replied. She paused and looked at us who stood helplessly behind the prince. The old woman wore a cape, brown and tattered from the elements, and from underneath, 
she pulled a single red rose. The flower glistened from drops of rain that speckled each petal. Its stem curved beneath the corolla, rich green with pointed thorns, like the talons of a great bird. I have no money, but I give you this rose, a token of the beauty found in life. The prince laughed. A rose? My gardens are filled with them. I own all the rose gardens in the land. He paused, then contemplated her. Did you steal this rose from my garden? She startled at his accusation. No, my lord, I, I have carried this rose with me from far away. If you carried that rose from far away, it would be withered by now. It is unlike other roses. It's magical, and I offer it to you. The only thing that is magical is the extent of your arrogance. You thieve from me and try to peddle it back for my good graces. My lord, I swear. Ruskin slapped her across the face, and the old woman fell stunned to the ground. Please, she softly said. I should have my men call the hounds upon you. She tried to stand. But trembled, so that she fell to her hands and knees. Can you not even walk upright any longer? Ruskin asked. Has age stooped you to trot on four limbs like a beast? Be off then. Gallop back to the den you crawled from. He laughed again. The sound climbed and echoed as if each snicker reverberated off the drops of turquoise rain that fell. The old woman's face contorted. And I knew not if she was to cry or bellow at her tormentor. Instead, it melted, and another face, a younger face, appeared. A bolt of lightning flashed, and a crack of thunder sounded, and the prince's laugh shattered. The woman rose, taller than Ruskin by an head. She spoke in a voice. That was deep in pitch and furious in tone. Wicked man, your heart is dead to the world, and your capacity for affection is like a dried husk that was formed hollow and has since withered away. For your punishment. You will be as vile in appearance as that of your character, a man who appears as death, still alive, but rotting as a corpse that is suspended in decay. More lightning and thunder besieged us, and the sorceress's words wove throughout the fibres of the castle and all its inhabitants. You will covet the flesh you no longer possess, and will seek to satisfy that craving by ingesting the flesh of others," she said. As the sorceress decreed, the prince morphed before our very eyes into living death. His skin turned grey as ash, and floated from his once mighty chest like flakes of bloody snow. Bones pushed through flesh that became thin and translucent as gossamer, and the smell, mercy on us all, caused great retching malaise amongst us. His indentured staff. Though I bore no affection for my master, I was pained in horror for him. Regardless of his debased manner, he was not meant to suffer as such. Touched by death, yet not fully taken. The sorceress was not completed in the words of her curse. Serfs of this wicked man, paid. I cannot release you from your oath of servitude. In his undeath, as in his life, you will continue to attend your master. Since he now craves to devour flesh, I must enshroud you from his sight. 
so he does not consume you one by one. I gasped and raised my hands to my mouth. Then I shrieked, for there were no hands before me. I felt as normal as before prior to her hex, but now I was invisible. I looked down at myself and saw only the cold slate I stood upon. The other servants cried as well in great clamour, so that we sounded as if ghosts haunted the castle foyer. Ruskin fell to his knees and moaned, his tongue no longer able to articulate words. All that emitted from him were broken bleats. Presumably, the plea for mercy he surely begged for. Except for the sorceress, he now appeared alone, and they stared into each other's eyes. And now, you will take the rose I offered, she said, for it contains the hope of your deliverance. Within these petals lie the essence of true love. You must find someone who will love you in your current state. Present them with this rose, and if they accept it with their heart and kiss you, the curse will be lifted. Until then, you will rot for your evil. The sorcerer turned and walked away into the forest, a long shadow flickering under bursts of lightning. Ruskin's fingers were stiff and gnarled, and he could barely grasp the rose she'd forced into his hands. His jaw dropped open to emit a long moan, and I saw inside his mouth. It appeared as a cavern of horrors, with teeth that skewed like crooked stalagmites and covered with brown sludge, such as which forms along the edge of chamber pots. I wondered how anyone could ever feel love enough to kiss that. I felt we were doomed to remain in the perpetuity of her curse for all eternity. The prince stumbled to his chambers. His gait slowed, so he shuffled when he walked, like an old man and he wept all the while. The other servants and I dispersed throughout the castle, occasionally bumping into each other. We each dealt with our grief in different ways. I stared for hours into a mirror that reflected back to me only the opposite side of the room. Some snuck ale and drank away their despair. Some cried until the following morning. One of the kitchen staff leapt to his death from the top of a spired parapet. In death, he remained invisible. It is the law and life for servants to care for their master, regardless of circumstances. The oath is a solemn one, and ingrained in our consciousness that we are bound to his duty to serve and to protect him. Only if our master threatens the life of another may we cause him harm, and only by his word or his death may we be released from subjugation. The next day the storm passed, and the sun dawned over timbered land, though melancholy haunted my every thought, duty compelled me to engage in daily labour. I swept the halls, and gathered flowers from the garden to place in the dining room, while outside I saw the prince's rose garden and shuddered. The other servants bustled about minding their own obligations. Though not seen, I heard the crash of pans as the cooks baked bread. I saw the prince's silver lifted in the air and polished with utmost care. I heard the song of the laundry women as they cleaned and pressed our linen. Even in difficult circumstances, a semblance of normalcy returns quickly. It is a means of comfort to not dwell on terrible changes, but rather to lose oneself in the mundane activities that make the days pass quickly. We did not forget, however, what the prince had become. The memory of him transforming to a beast of decay brands my mind with terror still to this day. Even so, the sight of him approaching from his quarters after the bell for breakfast sounded caused such revulsion 
that my stomach cramped, and I nearly disgorged its contents in heaving. I heard the exclamations and whispers and sounds of retching from others around me. His chair pulled out for him, and I knew Peter was there. That was his duty. The Ruskin beast sat, and beads of amber fluid leaped from his mouth to splatter on the great table. Moments later, great platters arrived, bearing fruit and eggs and cream. The prince stared at it all, then bellowed. His cry sounded of confusion and of hunger, yet he knocked the trays away without so much as a taste of the food presented. I suddenly remembered. Dear mercy, I whispered. It's flesh he wants. It's as the sorceress commanded. He craves only flesh. Gasps filled the room, but they knew I was right. We called out to the strongest of the servants, the stablemen and groundskeepers, and bade them new responsibilities. They agreed, and two hours later returned with a wild hog hunted from the forest. The animal was laid on the dining table, seeping blood from spear wounds. Ruskin squealed in delight. The silverware, carefully polished and laid in arrangement, were brushed aside. He clutched at the hog's carcass and bit down into its flank, so that sinews and muscles tore, snapping like the sound of cracking ice. If you have ever seen a feral dog tear into its kill, that is how Ruskin appeared as he burrowed his head into the creature, rending it from side to side, while meat and fluids showered the floor. The prince's appetite was changed. No longer did the cooks vex over the temperature of soup, or if bread tasted too soft or too hard. All that was needed to feed him was flesh, and well fed we kept him. When the prince became hungry, he began to tremble, and his eyes dilated, and we knew their lust fell upon him. Being invisible kept us safe from his sight. But we knew not what would happen if he caught hold of someone while in his craving. Each day, we brought him pheasants and squirrels and deer and other animals caught from the forest, and in this way he seemed content. We lived as such for many years. They were not then, unlike now, truly terrible times. The sorceress's magical rose was placed in the palace vault for safekeeping, waiting for the day when Prince Ruskin might find true love. We became accustomed to him, wandering the plush halls, moaning like a lost child, and we tended his affairs as customary. He was fed and entertained, and his clothes washed daily to scrub off the decay, the rot. We grew accustomed to being unseen, though a numb sense of futility shrouded our thoughts, just as our sight was shrouded from the world. I took Peter, the valet, to my bed, and found a semblance of meaning from his touch. Being invisible is not so terrible, while in a lover's embrace. One stormy night, a visitor arrived at the main gate, just as the sorceress had so long before. Joseph, the butler, opened the heavy oak door. To the visitor, it must have appeared as if the door opened by itself. There stood a young girl with frantic eyes and golden hair like spun straw. Her skin shone as porcelain, and I recognised her appearance as that of a debutante. Though one who had not been cleaned or attended to in several weeks, she wore a lavender dress and a man's riding coat over that, both of which were frayed and soiled from mud and elderberry thistles. Though her face wore fear and pain. I saw, too, the shadow of avarice 
when she spied inside the castle's great hall filled with crystal and gold. She began to enter without invitation when Joseph's voice sounded. Halt! Let her in, I said. The prince, though still master of the palace, had long ago stopped issuing commands. Haven't we learned enough of the perils of inhospitality? The girl gasped at our voices and turned quickly looking for the source. Why can't I see you? We are invisible, I said, though otherwise we are just as you. She slowly stepped inside and gazed in wonder at the interior. What is your name, dear? I added. Beau, she replied. I became lost in the woods and the storm came. I was so cold, but saw the lights of the castle. A moan from the prince's chamber echoed through the great palace. Belle gasped. What was that? That is our master. But fear not, we will keep him from you. She looked again around the great hall. Lavish gold-framed paintings of the prince and his parents adorned the walls, bordered by tapestries of royal silk. Is your master a prince? He is a prince, though like none you have ever seen. I have seen many princes, she snapped back, as if I dared question her refinement. They are not so different from the beasts in the wood. They will take what they want and then roar and cry when they don't get their way. If I were visible to Belle, she would have seen me smirk. Well then, I said, a bit to eat perhaps. She nodded and I saw in her manner that she was accustomed to being served. I suddenly imagined her sneering at her own valets and waiting staff, finding flaws in their presentation or even grooming choices. The crook of a nose or style of hair might elicit cruel derision, and at that moment I felt thankful I was invisible from her sight. Were all the youth of royalty raised in such an arrogant manner. Her character mirrored the prince's, though I welcomed her in. I wondered how an aristocratic girl brushing the edges of womanhood could end up wandering lost in the forest. I took her hand and led her to the dining hall, announcing as I went to the others that we hosted a guest. I saw her admire the furnishings as we walked along, the cheval looking-glass rimmed in rubies, the emerald sculptures, the scarlet rugs, the antiques collected from exotic lands. Peter? I called out. I'm here. Please have the kitchen prepare a meal for our guest. Venison, if we have any left. Stew, peaches, wine. We arrived at the dining table and Belle startled, squeezing my hand tight. The table had not yet been clean since the prince's last meal. The carcass of a large mongoose lay across, savagely torn apart. Broken ribs stuck out from the chest at all angles, as if an explosion occurred from within. Drops of blood and bits of flesh splattered across the floor. The master, I said, has eaten here last. She shuddered. I continued, Come, we will serve you in another room. Over the following days, Belle remained, growing comfortable in the palace. The prince maintained his regular routine of wandering the halls and dining when served. We kept Belle from his presence for both their sakes. However, I knew the time would arrive that she would see him, and I feared for her sanity. I led her privately into the library to speak. My lady, I said, as that was how she directed we refer to her. I'm pleased that we've been able to provide for you during your time of need. Yes, I find that it suits me here. However, surely there are others that worry for your well-being. Perhaps the 
time has come for you to return to your own home. She frowned. The dark cloud seemed to pass across her blue eyes, as if a black tempest formed in the clear sky. I no longer have a home. My lady, was I misunderstood to believe that you are well kept by your own people? I thought you were a, a princess. It is true. I am, was, a princess. You wouldn't understand what it's like to be accustomed to only the finest luxuries of life. I was raised in privilege, and expected to die in privilege. My parents were nobles, and not so long ago, I was bequeathed to Prince Horace, who was fat and had warts upon his brow like a toad, but his coffers flowed with gold ingots and diamonds the size of cherries. I bought anything I desired, and I was happy. Love, after all, is only an idea. Whereas riches are the tangible resources of life, the means to gain anything one desires, power, prestige, adoration. As she spoke, her convictions perplexed me. But perhaps it was as she prefaced. I wouldn't understand what it was like to be accustomed to the finest luxuries of life. She continued, Horace was a stupid man, with no fortitude. We consummated the marriage on our wedding night, and I never let him touch me again. His palace was mine, and I ran it as such. Unbeknownst to me, however, his wealth was a fraud. He had engaged in bad business, investments, and squandered our fortunes. In only a year, we lost our rights to the very land that the presence revolted against us from. Horace owed to other kingdoms. And they came and took everything, including him. Horace was sent to a debtor's court and hanged. They came for me as well, but I escaped. I fled, knowing that providence would aid me, for a true princess is not fated for squalor. Unwittingly, Raskin must have passed by the library as we spoke. He managed. To stifle his customary moans and stood in the doorway listening to Bell's tale. We both startled when he spoke suddenly. He spoke no words, of course, but the prince's voice rumbled in gargles and growls, and I imagined I comprehended what he tried to say. The intonation of his moans sounded of welcome, and the excitement. That radiated from his yellowed eyes registered the lust of attraction. Bell, credit to her, did not shriek in horror at seeing the prince, as I surely would have, should our circumstances have been reversed. His blue-grey figure blocked the doorway, and his hands upraised as if in greeting to show gnarled, splayed fingers. I believe. She suspected something of Ruskin's condition from his daily moans, and the raw carcasses left from meals, and she must have steeled herself for the expected meeting. Even so, her eyes gave her away; they betrayed fear and disgust. Quickly, she corrected herself and bowed to him. Invisible hands from passing servants quickly took hold of the prince and moved him along. Perhaps thinking he meant to attack her, he was led away, presumably to feed. You spoke true," she whispered to me. "Your master is like none I have ever seen." Though she had discovered the castle's secrets, Bell remained. We could have removed her by force, but it was comforting to see another person, one who appeared as we once had. Her orders to us became increasingly more complex and arrogant, though there seemed no wish of hers that we had not previously fulfilled under Ruskin's voice. She required to bathe in water that was heated and kept precisely at ninety degrees. She demanded we 
tailor custom gowns from the most supple of silk and lace. She adored the prince's roses and bid a fresh one be placed at her bedside each night. She also ordered us to wear chimes around our necks so that she was aware of our presence. Though I verbally complied, I wore my chime only occasionally. I preferred to watch her unknown. I dreamt I was Belle, and I began to emulate the way she dismissed us with her hand and the way she pursed her lips in the mirror. There were none who could see my behaviours, but it aided my fancies to pretend I was someone else, someone beautiful and entitled. Once I spoke to Peter as if I were her. What do you know of the ways of the world? You are but a sad boy, locked away in servitude. Immediately I felt loathsome, as if a lake of slime formed within my soul, and its ooze overflowed from the weight of those words. I quickly apologised, and thanked the gods I was not born to nobility. The prince began to follow after Belle, shuffling from room to room with the bleats of a lamb in pursuit of its mother. If he could not find her, he bellowed with a ferocious howl and bared his teeth, so that we feared the outcome of his wrath. They started to dine together, facing one another across the long table. He would tear apart the killed animals we had brought him, and bay with joy as gore and innards dribbled from his mouth. It took only the sight of blood, or the scent of wound, to bring upon the bloodlust that twisted his face into a mask of uncontrollable frenzy. Belle would watch, polite, though visibly disgusted, as she nibbled at her own foods, fruit and cream and grains. After seeing Ruskin eat for the first time, she proclaimed vegetarianism. Belle knew, though she lived in the castle as if it were her own, she was still only a guest at Ruskin's whim. Should the mood strike, he could have her dismissed, and so she treated him with all the distant affection and courtesy she could muster. Of course, the more attention she allowed the prince, the more he expected from her. I spoke of this with the other invisibles, and we wondered, what if, what if, I took it upon myself to tell Belle everything. The sorceress had never indicated rules of confidentiality. So, one night, wearing my chimes, I sat by the princess at her bedside, bearing her nightly rose. I explained the curse and told her that only a kiss of love could return Ruskin to his rightful position as ruler of this land. A kiss? That is all? She asked. And he will be a man again? As he resembles in the paintings? Yes, I replied. But the kiss must be from the heart. It must be a kiss of true love. Of love? She repeated. I will think on that. I bid her good night and went to look in on Ruskin. He was in his room, pacing in shuffle from wall to wall. He never slept. Apparently, rest was of no use to the rotting undead. His body or mind did not need to refresh itself or to conserve energy. He always moved, slow and methodically, like the gears of a clock that turn and turn and turn. His instinct seemed driven only to eat. I watched him from my veil of imperceptibility. Ruskin stopped and sniffed the air, once or twice, then continued his mindless pacing. The horror of his visage seemed, if possible, to have grown worse over the years. 
his features had sunk back into the hollows of his skull. Though we bathed him incessantly, maggots and dark beetles resided in burrows under his flesh where we could not reach. They darted in and out of his orifices and from the open wounds that festered on his body. Black fluids seeped from his ravaged muscles, as sweat might appear on a normal man. Though I knew not what that fluid could be, he paused at his open window and looked down upon the rose gardens that blossomed in the yard. Perhaps he contemplated their significance, reminding him of his arrogance and of his affliction. Perhaps, also, he remembered one rose in particular that held the remedy to his torment. He turned with a wet gurgle, as if crying, and began to pace again. I knew not how circumstances might settle if left to their own accord, and decided to nudge fate in the direction that seemed to favour all involved. I crept to the palace vault, and carefully brought out the magical rose. I carried it to my quarters, and waited until morning when the princess would awake, when a new dawn would rise for us who were cursed. The morning bell rang for breakfast. I was up in a flash, and carried the rose to the dining hall, where Ruskin and Belle would meet again for their morning meal. Ruskin appeared first, and staggered through the entrance as customary, shaking and moaning, trailing drops of slime like the residue of a slug. I held the rose out to him, which, in his eyes, must have appeared as if it floated. He gasped at its sight. Belle emerged next, sauntering into the hall with dainty steps. She looked splendid in an azure silk robe, and her hair was artfully arranged in wide curls that bounced with every movement. The princess bore a shine to her face, a glow like sunrise that crests the horizon, and she looked every part of the title she held. I heard a quiet exclamation, and elsewhere the sound of a chime, and I knew there were many other servants present. I placed the rose into Ruskin's hand, and Belle knew from what I told her that the moment of her volition had arrived. She walked across the room to meet him, standing so that their faces were near to each other. He breathed unto her a smell of wretched decay and wet death, but she did not flinch. We watched the encounter silently and unseen, as if the couple were the only two beings in all the palace. Ruskin moaned and brought one grey arm to her side. His other arm trembled, and with a great effort he presented Belle the magical red rose. She sighed, for she knew he offered his heart, and with it, his world of privilege. I knew then that Belle truly had grown to love Ruskin. She loved him, not for his appearance or his charm or his kindness, but for his wealth and his land and his title. She so greatly loved those things that were of the prince, she was able to overlook the abomination of his living death. It is the same as any other quality to love someone by. Appearance, generosity and wit may all fade away, just as easily as wealth, and according to the circumstances of life we can never entirely control. Such is the truest love of all, to cherish what you value in a person that you are able to accept their flaws. The moment was enchanting. Even now, I do not doubt the wonder and sincerity I felt that two like souls could find each other in such circumstances. She took the red rose from Ruskin, and a thorn on its stem pricked the tip of her thumb. Belle grimaced for an instant, then forgot it 
and leaned in to kiss the prince. Her lips parted in sweet expectation, but on her thumb, her drop of blood welled up, red as the petals of the flower. Ruskin's nostrils fled, and he looked at that single drop of red, shining so bright against her porcelain skin. I saw him shudder, and watched the change in his expression. As one who salivates at the aroma of a fine stew, his chest heaved, and Belle thought that to mean he was overcome by passion. It is true, he was overcome by passion, but it was no longer for her love. Oh, the cruel irony of fate! Had she pricked her finger only afterwards? They would have kissed, and the curse lifted. Instead, she wrapped herself around him, and their mouths grew close. Ruskin bit off her lip, and she screamed. The sound of bell will remain with me all my days. It was a cry so terrible. I can only like it to the heavens being rent from the horizon and raked across with iron spikes. Her shrieks were unearthly, and he called in terror and pain and betrayal. She tried to push away from him, but it was too late. Their arms were entwined, and as she turned her head to beg for help, he chewed into her cheek. We shouted in horror. The other servants surely. Feeling the same sense of rage and defeat as I, we were close, so close, to having the sorceress's curse removed from us all. Perhaps we then acted in loathing for the prince for causing our invisibility. Perhaps it was the years of our pent-up anger and suffering. Perhaps it was a sense of conscience to rescue Bell from his attack. As the rules of vassalage are written, a servant may never harm his master unless that person is jeopardizing the life of another. Whatever the motivation, we acted in unison. Chimes tinkled, and a fireplace poker rose from the mantel and swung down to smash Ruskin across the back of his head. He grunted and released Bell. A loose brick ascended from the hearth and hurtled into his face. More chimes sounded, as if a choir and glass jars, chair legs, and anything else that could be used as a weapon were taken by invisible hands and brought to crash down on the prince. He wailed and flung his arms to fend off the blows, understanding our betrayal, but unable to see his assailants. Ruskin caught someone who rushed too close. I did not know who, but saw him bite down. And heard a cry of pain. An iron mace was brought forward, and it bashed Ruskin's skull repeatedly, until his head looked like a wet sponge twisted and wrung. The prince collapsed, and someone drove a steel bar through his temple, so that it pierced the other side and impaled into the floor he sprawled upon. His appearance was no longer deceptive. Prince Ruskin d'Avignon was now truly dead, and then. A wonderful thing happened. Our affliction by the curse lifted. We appeared visible again. A great cheer went up, and I fell to my knees in gratitude. I thanked the sorceress, blessed her for the release of our penance. The servants laughed and ran to embrace each other, remarking how they had not aged one day throughout the many years we lived under the spell. As it was. It seemed our tragedy would bear a happy ending. Of course, happy endings are only for fairy tales. I saw that one of us did not cheer for our liberation. It was Peter, and he suffered from a gaping hole across his neck. It was he whom Ruskin bit, and my excitement turned to despair. Peter lay next to Bell, 
and he cried as blood poured between his fingers. I ran to him, and so did several others. There was nothing we could do. And Peter, my love, died in my arms. My heart felt crushed, as if mountains of jagged rock collapsed over my spirit. Belle mumbled some incoherent words, and she also died. We decided to bury all three of them right away. We would dig two graves, one for Peter at the edge of the forest, and one for Ruskin and Belle to share beneath the Garden of Roses. I, I hoped the dead would find satisfaction in their final arrangements. Several men dug, and the laundrywomen sang hymns while the bodies were brought out and laid on fine cloth. I spoke kind words over them all, and two men bent to lift Belle first into the grave. Her eyes opened. She made a choking sound, as if trying to speak through a mouth filled with molasses. The shock went through us all. Belle's wound seemed ghastly, but she was alive. I should have known. As the princess's will for nobility was indomitable, so was her will for survival. Joseph knelt to her and spoke in reverence. The gods have given you new life. She looked at him from eyes that were pale and speckled with red, like the spotted mushrooms that sprout under dead logs. Then she bit deep into his forearm. Joseph cursed and stumbled backwards. Belle hissed at him, then grabbed for one of the maids. I screamed, and my screams echoed from behind by others. Turning, I saw Peter rise from the earth and tear into a stableman. Men rushed to Peter and Belle and kicked at them with heavy boots. The women fled, and I joined them. We had no weapons outside, where we mourned and buried those we thought dead. I looked back to see Peter catch one of the men and tear into the flesh above his knee. We were frantic. Had we known better, we would have fought them then. We would have gathered arms and hunted down each man and woman who was bit. We would have cut off their heads and burned their bodies to ash and killed any animal or bird that appeared to eat of their remains. But we did not realise then the effect of the sorceress's curse could evolve into such apocalypse. I wonder if she even realised it herself. The consequences of her spell were transmutable through bites, through saliva or blood, to infect others with the living death that plagued Prince Ruskin. I and the other remaining servants locked the front gate and barricaded ourselves in the castle. From the ramparts, I looked out into the yard that stretched between the rose gardens and the wild forest. And I saw Joseph and the others who were bitten transform into creatures of rot. They shambled around the walls of the castle, and finding no way in, dispersed into the shadows of the woods, driven by hunger for flesh. Three days later, other undead men appeared at the castle gate. They were hunters, I suspected, and probably the first men that Belle and the rotting servants would have come across in the woods. After them appeared more cursed men and women, dressed in the faded cloth of villagers from far away. They circled the castle and roamed senselessly through the gardens, then returned to the mysteries of the forest. We, the surviving servants, are once again trapped in the castle. We dare not leave for fear of the things that now live in the woods. Our stores run slim and we ration carefully. How many more weeks or months we may survive here is a mystery, as the number of the undead now wandering the land. Oh, I do pray for the sorceress to return. I call for a nightly when the rain falls, 
and I promise her such sweet shelter to pass the hours of the moon. I cry out to the world that the prince is dead and plead for us all to be absolved of her spell. I weep and shout, and when my voice finally grows hoarse, I collapse and whisper for the sorceress to pity me, or at least make me invisible again, or at least return me to a guise where I am unseen, so I can walk away from this palace of gold and never look back. The sorceress does not return. The undead creatures, the beasts, multiply in number. The curse of Prince Ruskin d'Avignon is not yet concluded. That was Eric Gunnard's A Curse and a Kiss, as read by Margaret Essex from Australia. Thank you, Margaret. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.